Church, it is good to see you guys uh, again this morning. If you're first time or first time in a long time, we're continuing in a series we've been in since the beginning of the fall called uh, The Big Story of Scripture, where we are going through exactly that, the, the big story, Genesis to Revelation, all the major themes and stories that tie the one story of Scripture all together. And so this morning we're going to be in Hosea, really in Hosea chapter 1 and a little bit in chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles want to go ahead and turn there, you can go ahead and do that. Um, as, uh, as I get into this this morning, I've got to just say, uh, this has been a very, very rich week of preparation going through this text, because as you're going to see, it's exactly what we just sang about uh, all morning long. Uh, all Hosea is, is about the overwhelming, uh, all-consuming love that God has for us. That's it. It's just over and over and over again. It is only that it is the all-consuming, overwhelming love that God has uh, for people like you and for me. And believe it or not, I I, I didn't even plan for this to actually fall on Valentine's week, right? I, I, I did not actually plan for this. I didn't kind of set out, if you know this, I kind of set out the, um, the calendar a year ahead of time or so, and I kind of put things out there, and, and uh, we kind of go through some things that was not intentionally. By the way, did you guys know that this is Valentine's week? I, I feel like I need to throw that out there. There's some, like Thursday is a really, really big day for us this week, and so um, Wednesday is a really, really big day for us this week. Do not forget that. You do not want to forget or think that it's going to be on Thursday because you're going to be in the doghouse, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, if you're needing some last-minute gift ideas, I was looking online, I saw some hilarious ones this past week. Okay, I don't know if you can see that. That is a heart-shaped steak. Yeah. Right, Tim? I know you got Patty that steak already. I know that is what uh, every woman wants for Valentine's, maybe not. Um, uh, this is also, okay, so if you had no idea what to get her for Valentine's Day, imagine how overwhelming arranging her funeral would be. Ladies, is this what you've always wanted from your man? No. Give her the perfect gift. Make pre-arrangements as a couple with the affordable funeral home. It's a gift that keeps on going. And, if, of course, if you didn't have dinner plans or anything like that, um, White Castle is taking reservations. Uh, I wish we had one here in Dallas. Uh, we do not or anything. I'm sure McDonald's will do the exact same thing for you. So uh, anyway, I hope you guys don't miss that. By the way, where are we on Valentine's? Did, does anybody here love Valentine's? You love this? You look forward to this every week or every year, every Thursday? Um, anybody hate it? You're kind of like you're in the negative Nelly camp. Daniel Sage, I figured I was going to call you out, bro. Uh, anybody else in that camp is kind of going, okay, well, I kind of resent the idea that we need a holiday to say that I love you to the people that we love. I'm kind of in that same boat a little bit, but I'm also kind of in the camp of, you know what, I'll take any excuse that we can to celebrate something. I kind of like these opportunities. I think regardless of where you fall on this whole idea, I think the one thing that we can all agree upon is that it never, ever, ever gets old hearing, I love you. I was thinking about this past week and even going back to the college days, very, very first Valentine's I ever spent with Kat. And I've told you this a lot before. Like my first time experiences doing a lot of different things are typically disastrous. And that was the exact same thing with this one. Uh, we were early in in college. I was a junior. She was a freshman. And, and we were kind of at that point in our relationship. We knew that this was going to happen. And we knew we were in love and this is going to take, we were going to get married one day. And uh, Valentine's comes along. She's an Uber planner. I'm kind of a more fly by the seat of my pants guy. And uh, I, I wanted to surprise her that day. I kind of wait. I didn't tell her anything about it until the evening. And she totally th thought I forgot all about Valentine's Day. I guess I was thinking it was a Thursday. And it was actually a Wednesday that year. Um, 
But like that kind of thing happened, and so it didn't start off on the right foot. And I thought I'd surprise her and do this really romantic thing. I thought I'd cook for her. I don't know how to cook. Like literally, my diet in college was Totino's pizza and like uh, like mac and cheese, about right, like ninety nine cents each. And so I decided to try to make a lasagna and burn the whole thing. And so I uh, end up getting like a Stouffer's, and we have to like put it in the oven. Praise God for Stouffer's. And we decide I'm going to go. I'm going to go not just to a dinner or take it take her to our house or anything, but I'm going to go pitch a tent out in the woods, and we're going to make this nice candlelight dinner out in the woods. And I'm going to dr- bring these like extension cords out there, and I'm going to show this video, this this rom com, this romantic comedy movie, and. We're going to go watch this thing out in the woods, and it's going to be beautiful and wonderful. And I'm bringing the off with me because every woman wants to spray off on their date on Valentine's. And, like, I thought it was going to be wonderful. And we're out there, and, of course, the, it was not exactly what I was planning by any stretch of the imagination. And we're kind of, and she's going, okay, I don't know what we're doing, and I can't believe I'm signing up the rest of my life with this man. But, uh, um, and it was kind of going okay at that point in time until the police showed up. And uh, evidently, we were in the park illegally after hours, and... All of a sudden, there's flashing lights on the outside of this tent, and, and there's a giant spotlight. Freeze, get out, come out with your hands up. And I have to, like, slowly crawl out of the tent. We're here on our own volition. Yes, she's here on her own will. And, and they come and frisk me and do all this stuff, and they escort us out of the park. And, like, I'm not kidding you. Like, it was an absolute, absolute disaster of a Valentine's Day date. High schoolers don't take notes on that. Like, she never wants to go into the woods and watch a movie or anything like that, but... Regardless of how you look at it, like she knew beyond a shadow of a doubt how I felt about her that night. Uh, One commentator on the book of Hosea says this. He says, as apart from the incarnation of Jesus and his cross, what we see in Hosea is the most articulate, provocative, and compelling message of God's love for humanity that we're going to see anywhere in Scripture. And men, before we go down this track, I just want to say, like, this is a message that you need to hear also. Like this isn't one of these. This isn't just one of these um, these feely, mushy, gushy messages or anything like this. This is a message that you and I need to hear, and we need to be able to take and appropriate down into the depths of our soul in ways that have never happened before. And I think we get this. I was talking about this with my men's group this past week, and I asked them. I said, "Okay, well, how does this message about God's love for you? Like, how does that? How, how do you receive that?" And I think we get this. There's a lot of us. You hear that message, and it's kind of like. When we say things like, I love pizza, or I love the cowboys, or I love this, that, or the other, you hear it so many different times, it goes about this deep into our soul. And for men especially, for some reason, it seems like that happens a lot with us. Like we kind of put up these, these, these walls and these boundaries, and we say, okay, I'm going to let it go about this deep into my soul. And we were talking about that, and I asked my men's group, and I said, why do you need to hear this message? And we talked about a lot of different reasons, but the one thing that kept standing out above everything else is that I need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am loved when I feel absolutely unlovable. Anybody else in that same boat? Like, I need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm absolutely loved when I feel unlovable. And we talked about a lot of different things, but I just can't help but wonder if maybe, maybe, maybe uh, that might be someone that's in here this morning. Maybe you came in this morning and whatever's going on, like, you feel absolutely unloved. Like, you were that person that, that Travis was talking about saying, yes, 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 even you. I'm thinking about the person who's come in and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt how much destruction you've brought upon your family. Like, and you've walked in, and like when you're alone at night, and you haven't told anybody this, but you're just feeling the weight of guilt and shame upon your life, and, and, and you've kind of walked in this morning, and, and you're kind of going, okay, I, I, I know that I'm unlovable, and I haven't shared those words with anybody, but like that's absolutely, absolutely me. 
Like that's, what this me- that's who this message is for this morning. It's, it's the spouse that I've talked to this past week, hearing a number of different stories. It's the spouse that's sitting there going, uh, I've been emu- emotionally and sometimes even physically abused in this relationship for the entire time that we've been married. It's that person, and, and, and you're sitting there going, okay, I feel so in love because it's the only thing that I've heard the entirety of my marriage here. Like this message that we're going to see here in Hosea is absolutely for you, that God is absolutely 100% in love even with, with you. It's for the student who may have been dropped by their parents. It's their parents that have been the ones who are supposed to tell them and assure them and over and over and over again that you are loved. It is the student that cannot believe that because it's not the home that they were brought up in. Right? It's the, it's the dad or it's the working person whose career is falling to the wayside and everything is crippling around you and you thought that you'd be further along in your, in your path and like the income's not coming in and you're getting the demotions and this is cut off and then you're coming home at night and you feel like a total and complete failure and maybe or maybe not your spouse is kind of reinforcing that message over and over again and you're, you're feeling like things are crumbling around you and you're sitting there going, I am completely unlovable. Why in the world would this person stay with me? Like Hosea's message is absolutely absolutely for you. I'm thinking about the single person that's come in today, and you've been begging God for years that he would provide a spouse for you, and that's a genuine desire of your heart that, like, God would provide a spouse for you, and it just hasn't happened yet for one reason or another. Like, the message of Hosea is absolutely for you, that God loves you 1,000 million percent. He is absolutely emphatically in love with you, and I'm absolutely thinking about the senior citizen today who, who, who's who has been in a loving relationship the entirety of their life. And now they find themselves living in a home by themselves without the people that they've loved their entire life. And you're sitting here going, okay, like I feel unlovable. I feel like I'm unloved. Like I feel completely alone and unseen. And what the message of Hosea is going to be saying to you this morning is that you are seen, you are heard, and 1,000% God absolutely loves you. That's the message I see you, and I love you, and that's it, and probably the most provocative way that we are going to see anywhere in the entirety of Scripture, and so my hope and prayer is that you wouldn't let it go just this deep this morning because you've heard it a thousand times, but my hope and prayer is that you would say, okay, God, open up the floodgates and let this ocean of love, would you let it just pour over me, and would you let it reach depths of my soul that I've never let it reach before in my life. So let's go there this morning. Hosea chapter 1, as you're turning there, uh, you remember kind of where we are in the story. There's a lot that's been taking place, and I'm not going to rehash the entire thing. But essentially, Hosea's prophetic ministry is going to be taking place about 750 years before the time of Jesus, before he ever comes on to the scene. And so you remember this timeline, and Evelyn, you can go ahead and put it up, but there's a couple major covenants that are guiding this entire thing, the Abrahamic covenant, there's the Mosaic covenant, and essentially it is God's plan of salvation, his redemptive purposes coming to the ends of the earth through the nation of Israel. That's exactly what we're seeing in the Old, Old Testament. And there's this agreement in Mosaic covenant whereby, uh, whereby there's this arrangement, if they are faithful to God and they honor God and they walk with God, then God's favor and blessing is going to be upon the nation of Israel. And as he blesses Israel, that blessing is then to go and be a blessing to the rest of the world. And so that's the arrangement that's taking place. And as you know from the story of scriptures, it's not exactly how the whole thing plays out. There's idolatry, there's rebellion, they forget the Lord over and over again. And it's just cycles and cycles over about 700 years to this point of just rebelling against God and God lovingly bringing them back. Until this time in about 722 AD when 
Uh, it's finally God's patience has come to this end, and it's not that his patience has come to this end, but he's saying, okay, I'm going to finally give them over to what they've ultimately desired. There's going to be two major captivities that come into play here. 722 B.C., the Assyrians are going to take the northern kingdom because the kingdom that was once united is now divided, the north into the south. The Assyrians are going to take the northern, cap, uh, the northern uh, part of Israel. Uh, about 605 B.C., uh, the Babylonians are going to be in power, and they're going to take the southern uh, kingdom of, of Judah into captivity as well. There's going to be three major deportations, 605, which is Daniel, uh, 597, which is Ezekiel, and then 586, the Babylonians are going to come in there. They're going to completely wipe out the city, the capital city of Jerusalem, just massive, utter destruction. They're going to burn everything down. There is going to be no more home left. 539 is where we left off last week. Daniel in the lion's den. That's going to be Daniel chapter 6. And what we're doing this morning, Hosea's prophetic ministry is going to come in here at about 753 B.C., about 200 years uh, before where we left off last week. And the reason for this is that I want to go back and I want you to see the message that God gives to the nation of Israel just before they're taken away into captivity. Like This is really, really important to understand because just before this dark period in Israel's history, just before this season where they're going to feel completely unloved, just before this time when they're going to be completely alone and taken into captivity, and there's going to be all this, utter, this, this massive destruction, and there's going to be all this isolation and all these feelings of silence, God is going to let them know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is not the case that they are unloved, but they are loved beyond a shadow of a doubt of a doubt. Here's how it all goes down here in verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, he said to him, go, marry a prostitute who will bear illegitimate children conceived through prostitution. I told you it was kind of a provocative story, right? This could not be, this is probably the worst ministry assignment uh, that's ever been given and in the history of the world. I can't imagine like coming out of seminary and being like, okay, Lord, I'm ready, I'm ready to go wherever it is you want me to go. Like I'm studying, I'm ready, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to be sent by you. Whatever it is that you want me to do, God, I'm willing to do it. And here's what he says. I want you to go and marry a prostitute and I want you to bear illegitimate children conceived through prostitution. There's a lot of bad assignments the prophets were given back in those days. Like Ezekiel had a number of them. Right? Uh, Ezekiel chapter 3, he has to uh, literally eat one of the scrolls that he's writing upon uh, in order to illustrate how sweet and filling the word of the Lord actually is. Right? This is what they did. Like, like uh, in chapter 4, check this one out. He had to actually cook his food over human feces in order to illustrate um, uh, how desperate the state of the Jews would be reduced to. Like that's how bad things are going to get for the Jews while they're living there in captivity. Like Isaiah does the same thing. Uh, for three years, he's wandering around naked, and he is, or else he's probably in his actually like just his inner garments or something like that. I can't imagine he was actually naked or anything. But for three years, he's doing his prophetic ministry uh, in, in nakedness in order to to illustrate. Um, that they were going to be naked in captivity, that they were going to be stripped of everything that they had. But that's what's going on here in this passage. A lot of times prophets did not have the privilege of only going and speaking this message from God. They had to actually go live out this entire message of God. And so that's what's going on here. I want you to go marry a prostitute who will bear illegitimate children conceived through prostitution. So that's exactly what he does. In verse 3, he marries a girl named Gomer, which is also one of the most unfortunate names in, uh, in all of Scripture. Um, but that's exactly what he does. Here's why. It's not without good reason because the entire thing is illustrating this message that he wants Israel to get. Here it is. Because the nation, he says, continually commits spiritual prostitution by turning away from the Lord. Now here's the question I have for us. Does anybody else here have a hard time um, identifying with prostitution? 
like, I don't know about you, but I read this and I'm kind of going, okay, like, I, I've got a hard time kind of putting myself in this place here. Like, I get that I'm a sinner. I, I, I get that part. But a lot of times, like, I kind of think of myself as the kid who stole a piece of bubble gum from Walmart, right? Like, I probably shouldn't have done it. But ultimately, like, look, let's be real about, like, there's worse things that could have taken place. It's kind of like what Matthew, what, what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 20. You guys remember this story where Jesus is speaking to a bunch of self-righteous religious hypocrites um, and he tells this story about a landowner who needs a bunch of work done on his land. And so he goes into the town that, that, that morning in order to go get a bunch of workers for his land. And he goes there about 9 o'clock in the morning. And he hires a bunch of workers. And he says, come work for me today. I'm going to give you $100 in order to do all this work. And so they come and they do all this work. About 11 o'clock in the morning, he realizes he needs a few more workers. So he goes back into town and he says, hey, I need you to come work my land. If you come work my land, I'm going to pay you a fair wage. And so they come back and they keep working. About 1 o'clock in the afternoon, he says, I need a few more hands. He goes back into town, grabs some more workers, come work for me. I'm going to pay you a fair wage. 3 p.m. he goes and he does the exact same thing. Come work for me, I'm going to pay you a fair wage. Well, 5 p.m. comes around. It's time to settle their debts. He comes to the 3 p.m.ers and everybody's ready to get their hand out and what they're supposed to be paid. And he comes to the 3 p.m.ers and he hands them $100. And everybody else in the group, they're kind of looking, they go, whoa. Like, those guys work for two hours, and they're getting 100 bucks. Like, what are they going to pay me? Like, what am I going to get from this? And the 1 PMers come up there, and he hands them $100. And they're kind of going, okay, well, the same thing. Like, what are you talking? Okay, it's more than I expected, but not quite as much as, like, what? And the 11 AMers, they come around there, and they go, here's $100 for you, too. And by this point, like, they're all getting furious. The 9 AMers come to the front, and they get $100, too. And, like, everybody, like, they're ticked off at this point in time. And, of course, the point of the entire story is that there's no one here who's actually truly a spiritual 9 a.m.er. There's no such thing as a 9 a.m.er. The reality is that we are all 3 p.m.ers, Johnny-come-latelys, who have been given an incredible gift in these $100. There is no such thing as a 9 a.m.er, and that's exactly what's taking place here. We hate the fact that we're identifying here with this spiritual adultery before the Lord. It's not how I think about myself. Like, I've, I've walked with the Lord since I was a child. Like, I've grown up in the church. Like, I've been relatively faithful to him for most of my life. Like, I didn't have that crazy testimony that a lot of people have. Like, I don't think about myself in these things. And you're saying that we're in the exact same boat? Like, I'm, I'm a 3 p.m. Are you kidding me? It makes no sense. Like, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 is going to say that, no, no, no. Every single one of us are completely lost and dead in our sins. By nature, we're children of wrath. Like verse 12, he's going he's to keep going. He's going to say, remember that at that time, speaking to the Gentiles, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Like Colossians 1.21, you were formerly alienated from God, hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. And here in Hosea, what he's saying is that our sin is like prostitution before God. Like, he's been faithful, but we've been unfaithful the entire time. Like, God has provided. He's given us land, and he's given us blessing, and we're the ones who strayed. In other words, we are Gomer in this story. And and it keeps going here. Verse 3 says, so Hosea married Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. Then she conceived and gave birth to a son for him. Verse 4, here come the kids. His name is going to be Jezreel, which means God scatters. Because God would eventually scatter his people during captivity, in verse 6, she's going to actually give birth to a girl named Lo Ruhamah. I guess she's still bitter about her own name, and so she's kind of just taking it out on her kids with other bad names here and stuff. But it means no compassion, uh, because Israel's going to feel like when they're in captivity, they're going to feel like God has no compassion or love on them, like it's completely run out. 
Like verse 8, she's going to have another son named Lo-Am-I, which means not my people because they're not acting like God's people and they're going to feel like uh, they are no longer God's covenant people. Church, can you imagine the pain of going through the motions of this entire thing? I mean, he's going to have three kids and none of them are going to biologically be his. In fact, he's going to understand and know that all of them were conceived in adultery. Like, and, and for a while, like the family facade, like the charade is going to go on and, and it's going to seem like things are okay until sometime a little while later, he's going to wake up one morning and like, Gomer's just going to be gone. I mean, he just wakes up and she's completely out of the picture and he goes into the kitchen and he's going, Gomer, where are you? And he can't find her in the kitchen. He's going to go to the bedroom and he, he can't find her sitting there in the bedroom anymore and, He's going into the backyard and he's looking for his wife and just all of a sudden like she's gone. No note. She didn't say goodbye to the kids. And Isaiah's sitting there going and I'm a single father now and I've got three kids. I go, how, how am I supposed to do this thing? Some of us know exactly what that's like. And on top of that, like this is an honor-shame culture. And, and, and Hosea is supposed to be one of Israel's most respected leaders. He's a known prophet of God. This is an honor-shame culture, and he's supposed to be this example of hope, and he's supposed to be this example of godly living and, and all of these different things. And like shame and embarrassment doesn't even begin to describe the different emotions that he's going through in the middle of this scenario. And we're not entirely sure of exactly what took place after that, but a little bit of time, a little bit of time passed, and God comes to him and says, here's what part two of the story looks like. I want you to go, and I want you to find your wife. And I want you to bring her home. And Hosea's got to be like, okay, come again, Lord. Like, what did you just tell me to do? You want me to go? Like, I know that there's this out clause you say, right? Like, I, I have the freedom to let go of my wife and to, and to stop, like, submitting myself to the pain of this whole thing. And God comes to him and says, okay, I want you to go. And I want you to find your wife. And I want you to bring her home. Again, chapter 3, verse 1 is where that picks up. Go and show your love to your wife again, even though that she loves another man and continually commits adultery. In other words, this is not just a one-off thing. This is not just a mistake that he made or that she's making. Like she is loving another man. I don't know if that specifically means she was in love with another man, but she is continually in the act of adultery. Church, let me ask you, like how in the world are you supposed to love again after all of that? Like how do you love someone who is continually or in the middle of committing acts of adultery when they don't even want you and they don't want anything to do with you. I'll never forget years ago, a good buddy of mine who, um, man, I respect a whole lot, and um, he was going through a very, very similar situation where he just discovered that his wife had been cheating on him for a number of years. And I don't know why this took place, but she decided that she was going to write out the details in a journal, and she wanted to share it with him as she was coming clean about everything, and like, can you just imagine that? Like, you, you, you realize, okay, my wife has been committing adultery. She's not in love with me. She wants to out of this marriage. And then not only that, but it's been written down in this journal, all the gory details of every little time. Here's every reason why I wanted to stray. Here's how this man over here was better than my husband. Here's why he was everything that I was wanting that he was not. Here's every reason I was dissatisfied over here. And here's how every joy that this person over here was able to bring me. Can you imagine being in those shoes and reading that journal 
Like, I'll never forget the day that I walked into his house. He called me over, and he was just a broken shell. He was just weeping on the ground, and he's like, I can't stop reading this thing. I don't know why I can't stop reading this thing. And she was gone and out of the house at that time, but I can't stop reading this thing. Like, how in the world do you even recover from that kind of a thing? How are you ever able to love someone again after that? Because that's exactly what God is telling Hosea to go and do. He says, go and show love to your wife again, even though she loves present tense, even though she is present tense loving another man, even though she was continually committing adultery. And it makes no sense, but, but the reason he's supposed to do that is because it's exactly how God loves us. Like, here's what he says, like, it's exactly how God loves us. The Lord loves the Israelites. Even though they turn to other gods, it says that the love, Lord loves the Israelites. Even though they love to offer raisin cakes to idols, and I have no idea what raisin cakes actually are, but even though they love to offer raisin cakes to other idols, it says that the Lord loves the Israelites. In other words, they were, they were unfaithful in every single way, but God still remained faithful. In other words, they wanted nothing to do with him, but God still loved them. In other words, they were lost and dead in their sin, but God still loved them. Even when they were alienated from him, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, even when we were completely unlovable, God still still loved us. Like literally, John's going to say that he can't help himself because it's not just that he feels like, John's going to say he actually is love. Like it's who he is. It's like he is love. So it's not just that he's loving and it's not just that he's able to feel it from time to time and it's not just that he has a little bit of love or sometimes feels love. He's going to say, no, 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 no. Inherent in who he is, God actually is love. It's his character. It's like, it's who he is, meaning he is the definition of love. He is the perfect embodiment of love. He is the perfect picture of love. And church has been that way from the very beginning. He is the triune God who has eternally and always existed in a perfect loving relationship with himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. From the very beginning, it has always been that way. The Father, out of love, sent the Son. The Son, out of love, willingly submits to the to the Father, and the Spirit out of love glorifies the Son. And church, it's been that way from the very beginning, which is exactly why John can say, no, 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 it's not just that he feels love or he knows what it is, but inherent in who he is, he actually is the very definition of love. Church, we've got to understand, like, when we're talking about the love of God, we're not talking about it as we talk about it today. It's so much better than every other way that we talk about it today. Like, it's more than just a feeling that he has for you. Like, it's more than just this thing that you're, that you're able to easily fall in and out of or that you're hoping to find one day. It's more than just, uh, it's more permanent than a fleeting holiday or anything, right? I, I, I talked about this Generation Z report uh, last week talking about uh, kids age 3 through 17, largely high school age and stuff. And they were talking about it in this report how the, these students are growing up in this world that largely believes two major lies about love. And it's not their fault. They're growing up in this world that talks about two major lies that we believe about love. Number one, they believe that, and we believe that love is something that is earned and, not, and maintained. Like, we believe that love is something that's earned and maintained in the world. I mean, you think about this, but like, tomorrow we're going to wake up, and, and if it's a normal average day, we're going to run into about three to 5,000 different marketing messages that are going to cross our path on our phone, on billboards, on the internet, on TV, on commercials, on passing, uh, on billboards that are attached to different cars. And it's going to be all over the place. And these are targeted messages that are constantly telling you, you are not enough and that you still need more. Like the average teenager and young adult today, like we're going to have social media up somewhere around here for about nine hours every single day. Constantly reminding us that our value is dependent upon how many likes and how many different things that we get from strangers we don't even know. 
Like, if you're a high school graduate, then you've already spent about 15,000 hours of your life being graded solely upon your performance. Then we're going to graduate college, and you're going to go get a job, and your raise is going to be solely dependent upon your performance. And church, all of that is great as long as it stays in the professional world, but that is not the gospel. It's not the gospel. It's karma. It's this idea that, that no matter what else happens, like you are what you produce, and you will only ever get what you truly deserve. And church, that's what we're feeding on every single day of our lives. I, I think I've shared this quote from Madonna, article in Vogue a number of years ago. Here's what she says. My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That's what's always pushing me. Some days I'm able to push past one spell of it and discover that I'm actually a special human being. But then I quickly feel mediocre again and uninteresting unless I do something else. Even though, I'm become, even though I've become somebody and accomplished a lot, I still feel like I have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. Like Oprah said the exact same thing. Oprah, the most successful woman uh, by American standards that we have uh, in, in the world today probably. Here's what she said. I discovered that I really don't feel like I'm worth a darn. Certainly not worthy of love unless I've accomplished something great. Church, how in the world do we get there? Like how in the world does that even happen? Because it's not the gospel. The gospel begins with even when you felt unlovable, you were already loved by God. While you and I were hiding and did not want to be found, like while we were selling ourselves to other gods, the God who made you went after you in order to bring you home. Never, a number of years ago, Matt Chandler reminded me of a story that he shared uh, of something that happened to me back in high school too. But how many of you guys ever went to a True Love Weights conference back in the, back in the day? Yeah. It went, went to those, they were all the rage back when I was in high school, and I don't know if you guys deal with that now or not, but I think the intention of them was very, very good. Um, you know, obviously, it's a message about, about students maintaining purity and walking in purity and, and holding out and, and being pure in their relationship with the Lord and having that kind of overflow in the physical relationships with other people, and the intentions were great, but what often happened was that it would lead to a lot of fear-mongering, and, and it would lead to a very, very distorted view of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I'll never forget what happened that particular night, but um, like the, the, the pastor or the, the speaker that was there that, that evening, he came in there and he shared an illustration that was just one of the most damaging illustrations I've ever heard in my life. He gets up to the front and he says, and he holds this big rose up and he says, here's what I want you to do. He tosses it into the crowd and he says, I want everybody to hold this rose and pass it around. Touch it, smell it, feel it. I want you to just pass it around and everybody do that. And he goes off and, of course, the rose is being passed around in the crowd and we're all sitting there going, oh, okay, this is nice. This is a fun little rose. And he's, getting on the, he's going off about how something about STDs and, you know, if we, uh, if we don't kiss dating goodbye, then we'll probably all die and something like that. And, uh, and finally, the kind of the message crescendos and it gets to this end and he's kind of at this high point of his message and stuff. And he says, hey, where's that rose? And the kid comes back up, and he brings that rose up. And by this point in time, like, the rose is broken, and the petals are falling off, and the whole thing is just dilapidated and abused. And he says, I want everybody to look at this rose. Who in the world would want this rose? Who would want this rose? Like, nobody would want this rose. And I remember looking around the room, and it was exactly that. Heads were just down. Where in the world is the hope in that message? That is not the gospel. The gospel begins with Jesus wanted that rose. He wanted that rose. 
Like the beauty of the gospel, the hope of the gospel is that God wanted that rose. He went after that rose. He, when you felt unlovable, you were already loved. Before you were cleaned up, before you could bring anything beautiful to the table, while you were hiding when you did not want to be found, while you were selling yourself to other gods, the God who created you was pursuing you while she was in love with another man. While she was continuously in the act of adultery, God loved her. God loved her. That is the beauty of the gospel. God wanted that rose. The second lie that we're still believing today is that love is the same thing as affirmation and agreement with one's decisions. And church, it's just not what we're seeing in the story. It's not the same thing as affirmation. It's just constant agreement with whatever we want to do. Like God loved her so much. Hosea loved her so much that he's willing to go looking for her. And he was able to bring her home in order to bring her out of the darkness that she was addicted to. Like, honestly, church, can you imagine what this whole scenario is like? Like, God says, God comes to him and says, Jose, I want you to go essentially to the red light district in order to bring your wife home. And I want you to go looking for her. Like, you've got to understand that Jose is a prophet of God. Like, he, God is telling him to go to this place that, that holy men, that Christian men do not typically go. And he's saying, I want you to go to these dark places. I want you to go to these places that you've been taught to avoid the entirety of your life. And I want you to go find your wife. And I want you to bring her home. Church, what does this even look like? I can imagine, I can imagine he's just going down there and he's just like, he's feeling uncomfortable and awkward as he's walking those dark streets. And he comes across the first lady and probably didn't have pictures, but I can imagine like he kind of has a picture and he's just saying, hey, excuse me, um, ma'am, I, have, you, have you seen my wife? This is what she looks like. Have you seen her? And she's just looking at him with pity and she's going, that's your wife? Bro, like, she's gone. She's gone. I know, I know, but I've got to find her. I can imagine he's going along and like, I don't know if he's talking to other Johns that are out there that night too, but I can imagine a man going up to another man and saying, I'm sorry, excuse me, sir, but have you seen my wife? And he's looking at that picture and he's going, oh yeah, I saw your wife. I saw your wife. It was a couple days ago and, dude, I'm sorry, man, I, that's your wife. And he's just going one by one and he's just looking for her in the darkest places of the world. And the shame and the embarrassment is coming over him. Finally, it says that he, he walks up and he's going to find her on a selling block. It's essentially what's going on in here in, in verse 2. Most scholars are going to say that he's walking in on the auction, which is essentially a sex slave auction at this point in time. He walks in, and the first thing that he sees is his wife on the block. Can you imagine walking into a room, and there's your wife and shackles being sold? And so he goes to the front, and I can just imagine this conversation. He's going to say, pardon me, sir, like, that's my wife. That's my wife. Can, can I have my wife? Can I bring her home? And he says, I don't care who she is, like, you have to pay the price. I don't know if there's a bidding war that goes on or not, but in the end, in verse 2, it says that he ends up paying about 15 pieces of silver, five bushels of barley for her, which is everything that he has. It's not the full price of a slave that day, but he's probably bringing everything that he's got to the table in order to purchase back his wife. And we're looking at this going, okay, but, but like Hosea, she's already yours. Like she's already your wife. Like why, why are you paying for her? Like, why would you do that? Psalm 24, church, hear this. The earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. 
the world and those who dwell in it. Church, we were already God's. We were already His. I mean, He spoke and the world literally came into being. He knew us while we were in our mother's womb. He numbered the hairs that were upon our head like we were already His, but we ran. We were already His and we ran and we wanted nothing to do with Him. And the Bible says that the price of our running was death and separation from God. So God, in his infinite love for us, sent his son so that he could go and die and pay the price so that we could be bought, bret, bought back and brought into relationship with him. Well, church, that's what he did for us. So not only does he love the rose, but he was willing to do whatever it took in order to purchase that rose. And all she has to do is just simply say, I receive it. I'm, I'm willing to go with you. Like the love was certain. Like, there's nothing that Gomer can do in order to earn that love. Like, it's already been purchased. All she has to do is say, yes, I receive it. I'm willing to go with you. I'm here. Like, she did nothing to earn that love, and it's already been purchased. It's already been bought. And he shows up at her door and says, come with me. I'm willing to carry you out of here. All all she has to do is receive it. Like, John's going to say the same thing. And John, famously, in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, church, God's love is certain. God has loved the entire world. However, salvation is only appropriated when we come to him in genuine faith, when we're willing to receive it. Like, all our love... Yet those who come and say, I'm willing to receive it. Yes, God, I'm looking upon you and I'm saying, yes, oh God, in my faith, I receive this love. Would you take me home? Like Paul's going to say the same things. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. All she has to do is say, yes, I'm willing to go. Take me, God. Take me in genuine faith. Take me. And it's exactly what she does. In verse 3, I love this. He proceeds to renew his vows. I love this. He simply says, you must live with me many days. You must not commit adultery or have sexual intercourse with another man. And I also will wait for you. Probably not what I would have said in that situation. By the way, men, that is what love looks like. You're not ready. I'll wait. You're not quite there yet. I'll wait. You've been abused for so long. I'll wait. I'll wait. I'll wait. You're worth it. I'll wait. If you're unfaithful, I will remain faithful no matter the cost. And then in verse 4, I love this. The Spirit of God comes on him, and he begins to prophesy about Israel in the days that will come. And he says, for the children of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. In other words, captivity is coming. In other words, captivity is coming. There's coming a day you're not going to be ruled by your king. You're going to be taken away into captivity, verse 5. But afterwards, here it is. The sons of Israel will return and they'll seek the Lord their God and David their king. Not literally David, the Messiah who's going to be coming from the line of David. And here's what he says. He says, in that day, Jesus, uh, they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in those last days. Very, very different days than when Hosea was living, wasn't it? But here now Hosea stands after purchasing his harlot wife back and he prophesies about a brand new day. And he speaks about a brand new covenant. He speaks about a brand new Messiah king. And he says in those days people are going to be in awe of his love and of his goodness. And he says that people could be looking at this resurrected Messiah king who is wooing people in 
with his love, who is saying things like, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Have you ever heard a king speak like this before? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle, and I am humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And we're sitting there going, okay, but what about me, God? I'm an enemy of you. Like, I'm unlovable. I'm not that person. I get that you may want that to the, to the nice people over here, but I'm unlovable. And in Matthew 5, he's going to say, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and, the, and on the unrighteous. In other words, he gives grace and mercy, maybe not salvific, but he is giving grace and love to all of humanity, even to the enemies. And they're going to look at their king, and they're going to always be in awe of his goodness and his love. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 2, it's going to be the kindness and it's going to be the goodness and love of God that's going to lead us then to repentance. Church, who is Gomer? It's me. It's you. Her name literally means completion of wickedness. Completion of wickedness. Fully complete with wickedness and idolatry. Who is Hosea? God. His name literally means salvation. Hosea, Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is my Hosea. Nothing needs to be added when you meet Hosea. Nothing needs to be earned when you meet Hosea. When Hosea comes and he finds you, and you're in the red light district, and you don't even want to be found, the only proper response is yes. Take me. It's not, hey, I, I repented yesterday, or I cleaned myself up. No, no, no. The only proper response is yes. Take me, God. Rescue me, bring me home. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9. He's speaking to all these religious leaders, and I love this. They're asking, they're saying, why in the world, Jesus, why are you going and eating with all these different sitters? You know what he says here? He quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. Why are you eating with all these sinners? He quotes Hosea, and here's what he says. Go, learn what this means, because I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to seek and to save the lost. I haven't come for those who think that they are righteous. I have come for those who know that they are sinners and that they were desperate for salvation. I am Hosea, and I will go, and I will look, and I will search, and I will pay whatever the price is in order to bring you home. Church, he never stops, does he? He never stops. He didn't stop with Hosea. He didn't stop with Jesus. He didn't stop with the early church. He didn't stop today. He didn't stop with you. And for me, he's, he's still moving, and he's out there outside of these walls. He's here inside of this room, and he's out there in the city, and he never stops. He's underneath bridges. He's still in the red light district today. He's in the quiet recesses of our heart when we're hiding from him, when we don't even want to be found. He's there in your living room when you're reading the journal and you're feeling completely unloved. Like he's everywhere and he's still moving today and he's saying, I am Hosea. And when Hosea comes knocking at your door, all you got to say is, yes, I come. Receive it. I receive it. Take me. It's a simple message. God loves prostitutes. He loves us. He loves Gomer. He loves us. 
I was wondering if somebody needs to receive that a little bit further today. I'm going to end with this one. I'm, I've shared about my friend a couple times uh, around here in the past couple years, but I don't feel like there's a better, more appropriate story to share. But a number of years ago, I met a guy named Don, and um, Don back in the heyday was the most popular gay male prostitute in all of Dallas. Met him at a party one night in the middle of seminary, and we start talking, and I tell him I'm a pastor at Northwest Bible Church, and he says, we're not going to be friends. And I was like, wow, why is that? And he goes, last time I was there, 25 years ago, I was told that I deserved to be shot and killed and sent straight to hell. And I said, I can understand why you don't want to go back. And we start talking, and we get breakfast the next morning, and I assure him that that's not the culture of the day today, and he has a come to Jesus moment some point later on, and we keep this relationship going, and I'll never forget the morning that he finally decided to break those, um, to come into the church that day. I've been talking with Neil, our senior pastor at the time, and told him Don's story, and he calls me early that morning, he goes, hey, I think today's the day I'm going to come. And I was like, are you sure, Don, or he's like, you want to come? He's like, well, I'm sitting out in the parking lot, and I've been here for the past hour and a half. I can't, make, I can't bring myself to come in those doors, and I was like, I'll go get you, I'll go get you. So I go out there, and we walk in there together, and Neil sees him, and he knows his story, and we go, and we sit down, and I'm just nervous as all get out. Like, I, I'm like, okay, Lord, let this be a good Sunday. <laughs> you know, let, this, let our church just, let there not be that one idiot. You know what I'm saying? All it takes is one idiot. Silence that idiot today. And we sat down, and the service gets going, and he gets up there, and I love Neil. I love his heart. And he says, church, every now and then there comes a time when churches need to repent for the sins of the past. Even though we may not have actually been a part of these particular things, we need to repent for the sins of our past. And he broadly and generically shared a little bit of his story, didn't call him out or anything weird like that. But, and he said, church, I want every one of us to get down on our knees and to just ask God for forgiveness for the way that we've treated certain people. And everybody in that church that day was on their knees asking for forgiveness from God that day. And I was terrified. I'm going, okay, Lord, I don't know how Don is processing this heavy moment. And we go to lunch afterwards, and he's overwhelmed. He's like, I've never felt the love of God like that before in my life. A couple years later, uh, he'd been living with AIDS most of his life. A couple years later, he actually gets cancer. It's terminal cancer, and he's quickly spiraling downhill. And so we do what we often do in the church. We created a care calendar. When someone gets sick, someone's in need, we care for them. We love them. We bring them meals. We come and sit with them if they want to be sat with. We encourage them. We send them notes. And all Kat did was she just set up a care calendar, and she sent it to a few people. And they'd heard about Don's story because Don was this, he was a connector. God used him to connect the gay community and the, and the conservative Christian church like nobody else did. And they heard about him, and the, and the thing just spread. I'm not kidding. It was like people were coming by bringing meals morning, noon, and night. He lived in a small little apartment uh, out in Oak Lawn, and uh, it was, it was, people were coming by morning, noon, and night bringing so much food. Like I went over there one day, and literally there was like casseroles stacked up on the coffee table in the living room because there was no more room for him in the kitchen. And I remember one day he calls me, and he goes, Aaron, he's just weeping. And I'm like, Don, what's wrong? What's going on? And he's frail at this point, and he's kind of, it's towards the end there, and he's just weeping, and he's going, Aaron, you've got to make it stop. You've got to make it stop. I've never been so loved in my life, ever. 
I didn't know that God loved me like this. I just wonder if somebody needs to hear that this morning. Maybe you've believed it and you've known it this much. God loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. To the person who came in here today and is feeling unlovable, God loves you. He sees you right where you are. He knows when you're hiding. He knows when you're in the red light district and he still loves you in the middle of that place. To the wife or to the spouse who's reading the journal right now. Like all these truths are coming at you for the very first time and like all these realizations that my spouse is here, my spouse is there and it was not with me. God loves you. To the spouse that was out doing the running, to the spouse that was out writing the journal, to the spouse that left and to the spouse that ran, like God loves you. To the child that's been ignored, and overlooked, God loves you. To the spouse that's been physically and emotionally abused for years, we heard your stories. I know that you're there. God loves you. He loves you. To the religious person who's been in the church their entire life, and this message has become so redundant that your affections are numb to the things of God like he loves you. He loves you. To the single who's been crying out to God, I want to be physically loved by a man or by a woman and I've been praying and crying out to you, but God, I feel like I'm not getting any kind of response. Like he sees you and he loves you. To the senior adult who's alone, he loves you. To the African-American who's experienced racism and hatred and division and unfortunate language and you felt the pain of that, he knows you and he loves you. That's it. No applications. No go and do this. No steps. Let's just let the kindness of God lead us to repentance. Repentance.